re-enchanting is a really good word. Um, you have to imagine a better world before you can inhabit it. Yeah. And what the black church did was to help me imagine a different life for myself, even if I didn't know how to get there. Hi, this is Belle and Justin, and we are just popping in just before our final episode of season two. I don't know how we've got here already. I know. It's, it's flown by, hasn't it, Belle? Flown by. So we have Esau McCauley coming up and it's an absolute treat. But before we get there, we just wanted to thank you once again for your support and your encouragement and to just remind you that if you did want to give to Reenchanting, if you wanted to join our community of subscribers, then you can do that by visiting seenandunseen.com forward slash give. Yeah, um, it's worth saying that this this project, um, Seen and Unseen, is in a sense completely supported by people who want it to exist. There, there's no sort of central funding body making it all happen. Uh, so if you're willing to, to, to get behind it, if you've enjoyed the show, if you've been enjoying the conversations that we've been bringing you both on video and on audio, then, then do consider giving as we approach mm. Christmas. It's a good time to think about that. Um, as, as ever, the links are with today's show, seenandunseen.com forward slash give. For now, hope you enjoy this conversation with Esau. Well, welcome to our final podcast of season two here on Reenchanting. I'm Justin Briley, joined by Belle Tyndall, as usual. And it's another one where we're not in Lambeth Palace Library but it's so good that we're going to be welcoming Esau McCauley onto the show for this remote recorded edition of the podcast. Um, and as ever, if you can share this with others, tell other people about it, helps to get the word out. And we'd love to see even more people subscribing, listening, watching in season three uh, towards the end of the show. We'll even tell you how you can help us to continue to bring these videos and podcasts to more people as well. This is Reenchanting, a show where we aim to look at our secular material world and ask how can we re-enchant it with the vision of reality of the Christian worldview. So tell us who we've got on today, Belle. We've got, and I love this from Esau, he just, at, at your introduction, he was like, oh, that's what I'm on. <laughs> I use paper raise. Like, oh, that sounds interesting. Um, but we are, we are, and... <laughs> We are ending on a high. We're ending season two on a high. I am so excited about this conversation. We have Esau McCauley, who is an author, a theologian, an associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. Uh, his book, The Phenomenal Reading While Black, won numerous awards and his new memoir, which is his fifth book, I believe, is How Far to the Promised Land, which draws on his own experiences and questions what the American dream looks like for African-Americans. Yeah, so we are really looking forward to talking to Esau um, about growing up in Alabama, um, the racial divides of the past and the present in the USA, what difference it makes to read the Bible through the lens of African-American experience. And as we said at the top, whether the Christian vision of reality can re-enchant, particularly in this case, the conversation on race. Yeah. I'm so excited. This, I'm at war with myself, Esau, because you, I'm a New Testament person and you are one of my okay. favorite New Testament scholars. And so oh, all I want to ask you about is the nerdy things. But I shall <laughs> yeah. resist. I'll, I'll resist asking you about like the compositional strategies of John and dull stuff like that. And instead, 
<laughs> and instead I'm gonna go for our our signature question. We always okay. start it the same way because usually we're sat on the rooftop of Lambeth Palace Library. And so inspired by that, we always ask our guests, what are you reading yeah. at the moment? Well, I'm gonna sound kind of lame, Bill. Um, me and my family are having like a, a little bit of a, a reading contest. You can read the book of Acts the most times in November. <laughs> <laughs> What? Yes. That's awesome. Yes, That's not lame. With my children, and so we're reading the Book of Acts. Um, and but, but when I'm not doing that, this might even sound nerdier. I'm reading a lot of abolitionist literature. There's this um, book that I'm reading right now, maybe a, a pamphlet called Two Years Absence," where uh, a guy named um, James Pennington, who was an escaped slave, who was a pastor. And he's going to leave his congregation for two years because he's going to go over to, well, he doesn't tell them, but he's going to go over to Princeton to study theology. And he's explaining why he's leaving. So before um, he could, he said, I was an escaped slave, so I didn't have a chance to learn. I immediately got immersed in ministry. But now he felt like it was a key moral moment in American history. And he needed to go back mm -hmm. to school to study theology to be able to re-engage um, the culture. Mm -hmm. So that's been what's currently occupying my time. And I'm pretty sure I'm the first person who's answered that they're reading Two Years <laughs> After by um, James Pennington. I'm sure that nobody else on the podcast has done no, that. So nah, that's definitely you first. You're, you're, the you're first also the first with a family contest. Yeah, exactly. I you win on say. both counts. You, you're there definitely ahead. Yeah, I love that. I love that. what $10 would do for young children. I mean, maybe I'm bribing them. <laughs> but they're, hey. they're into it. Like, they, you know what? And I want the $10. So we're going to see who wins. <laughs> who gives you the $10, though? It's my money. Them. It's my money. So, like, so you just, all I can yeah. do is keep it. But, like, they want to take it from me. How, how, how many times have you read through the Book of Acts so far, then, Diesel? Well, it's funny. I'm, I'm at one and a half. Okay. And I'm winning. Um, well done. Well and done. so, one and a half. I, if I can get I'm the impressed. three, I think I, I, think I, sh I, should, yeah. I should hold on yeah. to my cash. Very good. Very good. Well, yeah. we, we've already said, you're, I know you're coming over to the UK next year, and you would love the treasure trove of antiquities and books and you know records in Lambeth Palace Library where we normally record re-enchanting particularly because I know yeah you're, you're invested in this issue of abolition and slavery and so on there's only very recently Bell wasn't there there was an exhibition of, of, of all the things to do with the church and slavery and so on mm. so so uh, yeah we look forward to welcome you um to Lambeth Palace Library I'm, 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 I, it's on my list of things to do when I get to the United Kingdom there you go yes. there you go um well look um introductions over um tell us about this new book that you've just released um yeah. a new memoir how long to the promise how far to the promised land um it actually begins by talking about the challenge you faced delivering the eulogy at your father's funeral tell us about the background yeah. to that and how you how you begin yeah. the story there so back in 2017 my um father died in a single car accident he was a trucker so he would drive trucks across country and he's in California, if anyone knows American geography, and he's heading back in California to the south in Alabama. And we don't know what actually happens. Maybe his heart stops, but the truck drives off the overpass and onto the other, and he's wow. killed immediately in a single car accident. And after conversations with my family, I'm an ordained clergy person. They asked me if I would do the eulogy. And that was a little bit tricky because he had been in and out of our lives because he struggled with drugs and addiction. And so I didn't know him very well. And so if anyone has ever done a eulogy, you know that part of what you do as a eulogy is you sit down with the family mm -hmm. and you learn about the person's life. And what you're actually trying to do 
they're trying to situate their life in the in the wider purposes of God. What can we learn about what God is up to in the world through the life of this particular person? But what when I sat down with my um, my family to learn about him, it expanded out from there into a family history, because you really can't come to grips with that, with his life without coming to grips with my own. And when I sat down and I began to talk to my family, it stretched out to be a study of my family with generations because I had known a lot about my family history because I didn't know my father. And I realized something that was really kind of important that led to the creation of this book is that when you are, when you grew up in a poor black family in America, um, all, especially in the South, all of American history is kind of dumped into your lap. Everything that happens in history happens to your family. Money is kind of a buffer. If you have enough money, you can kind of move away and not deal with some of the difficult parts. But if you read in American history about tenant farming and the exploitation of black labor in the 1920s, what happened to my great grandparents? If you hear about segregation and Jim Crow and the things that were done during the 1950s, that happens to my, my grandparents. And if you go about the war on drugs in the 1980s and 1990s, that's what happens to me and my family, in my childhood. And so, mm. How far to the promised land that began with the study of my father's eulogy or preparing, preparing for it really began to look at these key points in American history through the lens of people in my family. And what makes this a Christian book, because <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think there's a significant spiritual component of it, is it was in that context of dealing mm-hmm. with racism in the South that my family's trying to figure out the question of God. So mm-hmm. one of my favorite... Um, writers, and, and this is not just me being nice to the people in, in, in England, it's C.S. Lewis. <laughs> and C.S. Lewis, everyone loves um, Surprised by Joy. I don't know if it's as big there as it is here. Um, yeah. But Surprised by Joy recounts Lewis's conversion. And he's dealing with, you know, um, making sense of life post-World War II. Mm. You know, he has some of the greatest literary minds in human history evangelizing him. I wish Tolkien had evangelized me. <laughs> and he's trying to figure out God in the context of Oxford, right? But I realized that's his historical backdrop. But that's not my historical backdrop or my family's. My family's backdrop is anti-Black racism in the South. And so it may seem like it's a book about racism, but it's not just a book about racism. It's about finding God in the context of an often racialized South. And so it's both a book that explores racial dynamics in America, but it's also looking at the question of God in that context, because a lot of African-Americans are trying to figure out God in the context of a racially divided country. Mm. Mm. I am about two thirds of the way through it. And There's so much I want to talk to you about, but actually I'm a bit weary of talking to you about like the content in, in that I want to, I don't want to spoil it for people. Mm -hmm. And also there's so much of it that I'm like that, that story, that anecdote belongs in this book to pull it out of your voice and out of that package would, would, would be like a disservice. But I think the, one of the main things through reading it is as I'm reading it, I'm like, I'm aware of how, how weighty it feels in that I feel like you paid it forward for me to be yeah. able to read that book. I don't know if that makes any kind of sense, but I think, was it, did it feel costly to write? Because it feels, um, yeah. it feels expensive to read. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, 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 I do way. know what you mean. I, I would actually say that of all, of all the things that I've written, this is the most difficult book to write. 
Um, and then it did. Bill, you captured it perfectly. This book cost me something. Um, and it wasn't easy. And, and the way I put it, the way I put it is this. Um, sometimes all of us have stories or events in our lives that just kind of won't let us go. They happen to us and they stick to us. And at night before we go to bed, they just kind of return to us unbidden. And for long periods of our lives, those stories kind of have control of us. In other words, we look back upon them with regret or frustration or the feeling of melancholy returns to us. And sometimes the only testimony that we have is that, like, I survived it. <laughs> like, mm. I survived it. But there, there are also times in our lives we come to a place where those same stories that define us, we get control of them, and then we can turn them into a testimony of what God is doing has done for us. I think a lot about friends of mine who um, are survivors of abuse. Mm-hmm. And it's not a requirement for any abuse survivor to tell their story. But some people who survived abuse turn that into a ministry where they tell their story mm-hmm. as a way of helping other people find ways to get out of abuse, abusive situations, or to help the church do a better job. And I think about the people who tell those stories, they're telling the worst parts, the most difficult parts of their lives over and over and over and over again. And they've done that because at least in part, they've gotten to a place where that story doesn't completely, um, they've they've garnered some mastery over their narrative. Mm. And I want to say, I now appreciate more the people who do this regularly. I did it in one book. Yeah. But then people who do this publicly week in and week out, and even in the process of talking about this book and having to return to these stories over and over again, I've had a greater appreciation of it. Now, I don't want to say, and this is the careful part, I don't think that anyone has to get to that point. But I do think that when you do, one way of achieving healing is to use that story for good. And what I tried to do in the book was to use difficult stories um, for the sake of um, doing things that are good. Now, this, this, I want to make sure, as a theologian, I got to make sure people don't misunderstand. Because I do the Bible all the time, my analogies yeah. just come from the Bible. I'm not equating myself to Jesus or anything like that. <laughs> but I felt like, like Jesus could like show, when he's resurrected, he shows his wounds. He shows his wounds precisely because God has healed them, right? That the mm. thing that had him no longer defines him. He's not the one who's simply crucified. He's crucified and risen. And so he could show his wounds because it's it's testimony that the same person who was wounded is the person who is now resurrected. And I think that sometimes we get to the place as Christians where God has healed difficult things that we can show to the world as evidence of God's power to heal. And that's mm-hmm. what I was trying to do with different portions of the book. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I love, I love the way you've, you've done that. And so graciously in a way, um, I mean, we'll come and talk about sort of the fact that you don't draw a strict dichotomy between good and evil and easy solutions and so on in, in the book. But um, I mean, just sticking with sort of the early life that you do describe there. I mean, you, at one point you talk about the idea that, that it often appears in that, you know, in the community you grew up in that there were just three routes out of poverty, essentially sports, yeah. drugs, or the church. What, I mean, you did go down the sport route, you know, for some time, didn't you? Yeah. So one of the things that happens is people often, if you're from outside of the community, 
you can kind of judge a community that you don't actually you don't actually understand or know. And so the idea can be you should just work harder. Or you should just do better. And one of the things you can say, it's hard to do things that you can't imagine. So my children, mm. I'm a professor. My wife is a doctor. My children, their dad writes. So they might they say, mm. hey, I'm going to be a writer one day. I'm mm. going to be a doctor. Or maybe they have friends in the neighborhood whose parents um, do are, you know, coaches. They have a bunch yeah. of different ideas as to what they can be. And college seems normal because everybody they know went to college. And they go to my campus all of the time. So university feels normal to them. Yeah. Now, if you grow up in a context where no one goes to university and the only people who you see with college degrees are actually your teachers, right? Those are the only mm-hmm. how under what context can you imagine a different life? Well, I know the entire system, because I, I lived in the United Kingdom, is different around sports and universities. But in the United States, one of the ways you can pay for college, it's some, some different university, is that if if you're really good at sport, they will pay for university yeah. for you. Mm-hmm. And so if you can imagine going to university, one of the best ways to imagine going there is through sports. And there are plenty of people in my neighborhood who have gone to university through sports, but I didn't know any very few people who had gone there by other means. So I said, okay, Sports is one way. But if you if you don't choose sports, then a lot of people say, well, this is this is sorry, this this would be um some Justin Briley old school stuff. Utilitarianism, right? <laughs> um, or the means, right? This this idea that you like we, we have fancy words for it now once we get degrees. But the yeah. idea that the ends justify the means and there is no grander morality than that which you want and those with power can take. It's not articulated in those words in impoverished communities, but they exist there, right? And so mm-hmm. there are people who choose that philosophical worldview <laughs> that mm-hmm. leads to the destruction of our communities. Yeah. And then yeah. one of the other options that, that is like a, a, a light in those dark places is often the church. Mm-hmm. And it's the church that is that is that functions as an alternative to um, nihilism and utilitarianism. Mm. And for me, the church in, in the long scope of my childhood convinced me that nihilism and utilitarianism were not good philosophical means of approaching reality. Right. <laughs> wow. That both the end and the means must both be just in order for something to be truly good. Yeah. What, what, what role then did the church play in that sense as, as you were growing up? I know that you had a, you know, grandfather who was a, a minister and a preacher. And yeah. what, 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 what did that seed, if you like, in your life, even as you were kind of being, you know, raised in quite difficult circumstances in some ways? What, yeah. what role I, had, did I, the church have? I think that this either will or will not translate well to the British audience. The, the Americans listening will get it pretty well. Post-emancipation of the United States, there were no social programs created for African-Americans who were newly freed. And so the church becomes a center of black social life in a way that is unique in American culture. So oftentimes the most educated people in the community were the clergy. They were the ones who first elected the office after emancipation. They're also the ones who start helped start small businesses. Most colleges and universities that served African-Americans, many of them began out of the church. And so the the black church in the United States plays a particular role in creating social cohesion that it doesn't play in other communities. Um, it's almost like if you could think of like when, when you have immigrant communities who move to a place um, and the and the church is the, is the hub of all activity. And so in my context, the black church was 
a central gathering and socializing space. But it was also a place in which the, in, in, in essence, it was everybody went to the congregation. I mean, you would have drug dealers and the super pious all in, it's like the entire spectrum of the black community was in church on Sunday. And so it was in those moments where the church made the case for God against the backdrop of um, these competing claims. And my grandfather, like you said, was a respected minister in the community. And one of the things that that he did was that he was one of those kinds of people. He was both a pastor who owned a small business, who was a leader in the community. And so I guess I just saw in the church a vision of alternative way of life. And it was it was really I think that one of the things reenchanting is a really good word. Um, you have to imagine a better world before you can inhabit it. Yeah. And what the black church did was to help me imagine a different life for myself, even if I didn't know how to get there. And I would say that was the role that it played. I used to I used to have the, I think I don't know if I put this in the book or not. I think I did. I remember I used to go to church every Sunday. My mom was like, you're going to be in church every Sunday. You don't get a vote. <laughs> and I would say, okay, okay. If the sermon is good, I'm going to be Christian this week. If the sermon is bad, I'm going to stand. <laughs> and so it was like, it was that sense of urgency. Um, and, more than, and I was blessed to have a good preacher. I was like, man, that was a good one. I got to follow God for another seven days. We'll revisit this next Sunday. And so it was a week by week faith through most of my childhood. I love, there's so many things I love about that. <laughs> the pressure on the preacher <laughs> of your salvation hinging like, on their yeah. analogies and their exegesis. I was like, oh, you didn't get me this week. You didn't get to my conscience. I had the walls built. I'm in the streets with five yeah. minutes. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not saying, think- Bill, this is not, this, this is not theologically accurate, right? I'm not saying this is what you should do, but I was to make kinds of deals with God because I couldn't afford a car yeah. as a kid. And I said, okay, God... I'm not going to promise I'm going to be holy the entire week, but if you help me get this car, I would at least drive myself to church every 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 Sunday. <laughs> so I kept the deal. I got a car when I was 16, and regardless what else I did during the week, because a deal's a deal, right? Hey. <laughs> deal's a deal. So I, I went to church every Sunday, when even when I was old enough to drive myself. Do you? So I know, like you're joking that it's not theologically correct, and I know on one level that it's not. But I sometimes think back to the prayers that like teenage Bell prayed. And they yeah. are way more audacious than I would yeah. be now. And I actually think that, I well, I don't know. I imagine I like to ponder how God yeah. receives and reacts to those prayers. <laughs> and I wonder if actually he likes them a lot more than we think he does. Well, I will say this is all, there's the, I put, God is not bound by the rules that we create for him. And what I mean by that is if you look at something like the story of the Magi, I wouldn't recommend using stars as a regular means of encountering God, <laughs> right? I wouldn't just say yeah. like, that's my method that I will say we should apply mm. the Magi story kind of sits as, as, as an outlier within kind of the Christian story mm. that they're following this star and they kind of see the signs in the, and they kind of make their way to Jesus, but God does do that. And mm. so you find these extraordinary means for which God draws people to himself. And so I don't doubt that every now and then God just goes, yeah, I will use this thing, right? That is not in the ordinary to bring people to me. 
The yeah. tricky part is that like we can't rely upon that method. He has standard methods of normally um, acquiring. So I do think that every now and then God said, okay, I'll, I'll use this. This is how I can get to this person, right? And so yeah. I think that yeah. God, God does do, he, he, he finds us in interesting ways, as about as high as mm. I would put it. I mean, he often finds us in spite of our bad theology, and he he works. Yes, that's what I mean, things, yes. doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, get that perfect um, theology before you uh, come to God. Yeah, that's exactly. I, I, mm. I mean, I always I'm encouraged that God, for certainly a that we we're, we're not accepted on the basis of how good our theology is. Otherwise, no, none yeah. of us would be accepted. But but secondly, that God can kind of see the heartbeat behind something, even if it's you know yes. broken and not not right, and you know you know self centered and everything else. I think God can still get whatever is good out of it if you like and 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 it sounds like yeah. your your car story was one of those but um <laughs> i mean the, what i love about the book is you you're kind of you're really good at, at sort of breaking down sort of some of those picture perfect images you know of of christian life and, yeah. and that it is messy it is broken there's a, this kind of you live in this messy middle a lot of the time and we actually have heard quite a lot of that from a lot of our guests this season interestingly so it's interesting to kind of hear that in your story as well i've got, I've got a quote here um where where you say Things we separate intellectually into neat categories are messy in real life. My neighborhood then could be both dangerous and wonderful at the same time. That is why the idea of grace and forgiveness is so important to me. If we are all a mix of good and bad, then there is always a chance that the good might emerge victorious in the end. If we give God enough time to do his work, patience with broken people and broken things is a manifestation of trusting god i mean what what kind of ways did you see that playing out you know in in your story that that sort of messy yeah, middle way uh, where god can work yeah one of the one of the stories that i that i like to tell that i tell in the book is one of my favorite basketball games i remember playing as a kid so we were in elementary and middle school at the time we're pretty young and so there was a a place where there was kind of an open court where you could play basketball. And we were there playing. And the next thing you know, a group of people pull up and, they, you know, you can kind of tell by their clothes and the stuff that they have in the drawer that they're drug dealers. And you never know when you meet drug dealers, the kind of drug dealers you're going to get. The people who think the young kids are cute or the people who thinks of us as an annoyance. But they decide for whatever reason to be nice to us. And they bring out like a, a cooler. I don't know if you have the like a cooler with like alcohol and beers there. And so okay. they're playing basketball. Like a mini fridge. Yeah. And, mm. Like a mini fridge. I'm trying to I'm trying to translate this. I, I know enough <laughs> British English to not, to not completely blow this. But um, there's a mini fridge there. And... As the game goes on, if you've ever been to Alabama, it gets hotter and hotter as the day goes on, and they continue to drink. And so they're drunk halfway through the game, and we're young kids, and so we're just playing, and we win the game. We beat the big kids, right? And they were so nice to us, and it was fun. They were laughing, and they were super kind. Mm. Now, that was fun because anytime young kids beat, beat adults, it's like it's a glorious moment. And they, were, they didn't really mind it. And so in that sense, they were really nice to us that day. And sometimes I would see members, you know, people who are drug dealers who would say to me, hey, Esau, you stay in school. You don't do what we do. You know, here's $20. They would be really nice to me. But those are the same people who sold drugs in our community. They did real damage that, that, that led to the addiction that, that members of our family suffered from. Mm-hmm. And so the people who we saw in this neighborhood could be profoundly cruel and genuinely kind and honest. And so when people then saw, when, they, when you hear about a drug dealer or, or, or a, a, a member, who, someone who's been convicted of multiple crimes, you tend to think of them simply by the moment that society sees them, when they're committing the illegal activity. 
But oftentimes that's someone's husband, someone's wife, someone's child, and they're not always in that state. And sometimes those people change their lives for the good. And I've known people who were once involved in illegal activity who then had their life changed and they began to become good, upstanding members of society. And oftentimes through like the work of the church. I know people who are addicts who are now deacons in the church. And so when I hear then about someone who dies, this happens a lot in America, and there's kind of a commentary on their life. And they say, look, this person deserved it because look at all of the things he or she did before. They had this long criminal record. And I say, well, hold on. The whole point of Christianity is there could be a plot twist at any moment, right? Mm -hmm. That the thief Mm -hmm. on the cross literally at the very last moment and he turns, right? And so when you see someone who is going through a difficult situation, as a Christian, I can say, as long as that person draws breath, there's a possibility that God might um, do the work in their life in the fullness of time. And so I've, it taught me something about what it meant to persist in hope. Because it's easy to stop hoping. Because if you stop hoping, then you stop hurting. right? If you protect yourself from this situation, you kind of say, you know what? These people are a lost cause. It actually is easier for you because then you don't have to show any empathy. Mm. But persistence in hope is persistence in faith, right? It is this idea that maybe God is still at work in the people whom we've given up on. And I feel like this is the teaching of Christianity. And one of the things that, that I what, what I was trying to say is that if you're a Christian, the truly tragic death is not the death of kind of the pillar of community who was a member of the church, who volunteered, who like loved their, like, that's sad. But that person that kind of found their path, right? They were walking with the Lord and then with the Lord. The truly tragic deaths are the unfinished lives Mm. where they were, they were trying to find their way to God. We don't know where they were, right? That, in other words, to me, the most broken people are the ones who are most deserving of protection because they need time. And so what I was trying to do is to give people a picture of what it's actually like to grow up in those communities because Sometimes people think the only people who matters from those communities are people like me, the people who leave them. Yeah. And they encourage mm-hmm. pe- they encourage me to forget that community and to only focus on what I have and what the people around me have. And I want to say, no, 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 I'm still attached to those people and their lives still matter. Mm. Where, all, all of, where does um, forgiveness land in that? Because I, like the way you speak about it is so beautiful and, you know, a persistence in hope and, and that quote, I've got it. Um, Patience with broken people and broken things is a manifestation of trust in God. But I'm yeah. assuming that what you're not saying is that any of that means that forgiveness is cheap. Oh, no. The the best. So when I when I gave the eulogy um, mm. and maybe this bell, you can once again, so if you're New Testament, or Justin, one of you can yell at me if I, if I did too much when exegesis here. But I was praying through what passage should I use for my father's eulogy? Because he's one of those broken people. And I told in, in the passage that came to my mind was the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. If you open the book, that's the first passage um, that you read. Before the book starts, there's a, mm. a Bible section. And the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector um, is like one guy goes, Hey, I'm glad that I'm amazing. I never sin. You know, I'm, I'm the best. And the other guy goes, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And we love this story, Bill, because what we say is no matter what you've done, 
If you repent, God will forgive you and he'll welcome you into his family. And we tell their stories, we preach it, we kind of go, at any point you can come back to God. And that's true. But as I was thinking about my father's eulogy, I thought to myself, well, what if, what about, the, let's say the, 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 the tax collector was like 50 when he converted in the story. Well, what about the 25 years before the tax collector became a, a convert, right? Well, tax collectors economically exploited people. They collaborated with the empire. They ruined people's lives. If you're a tax collector, you'll probably show up at someone's house and take the last bit of money that the people had to live on and people were starved, maybe were rendered homeless. And so let's say, for example, you're one of those families of the tax collector who were rendered homeless by his activity. How would you feel about his conversion? Right. You might say, well, I'm glad that you've had a transformation, but for me, this is emotionally difficult. And I felt like my, I was the child of a tax collector. My father has, you know, his moment towards the end of his life. But the 25 years that he was gone from us created chaos. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to say for someone who hurt you that you want them to be changed. It may seem like an easy thing, right? But sometimes if someone hurts you, you kind of want them to stay bad because it justifies your continued anger. Yeah. And when they change, it's not as easy as to going, oh, you've changed now. Let's go. And, and, and so what I wanted to say is that forgiveness does not eliminate the things that were done wrong. And mm-hmm. so part of the telling of the story uh, in the middle of the book by the things that I experienced as a child without a father is to show the cost of forgiveness. In other words, it's not something that you just kind of go, oh, like we're happy, we rejoice, right? No, like, no, 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 your departure hurt us. Mm. And the process of forgiveness, and this this is what I learned, and this is not prescriptive, this is descriptive. I began to find space to forgive my father when I took myself out of the narrative and I saw him as a person. Mm. And what I mean by that is one thing to be a son who is upset with your father because of what the father did or didn't do for you. It's another thing to look at my father's life and say, it's a sad human life if someone lives and dies alienated from their children and separate from the people who, who would have loved them. Like, I wouldn't want any human life to have an ending like that. And so I could say, I hope that you find yourself, even if I don't benefit from it, because I don't want any human life to end in tragedy. And so for me, it was precisely the ability to separate myself from his story and to see it as important, his narrative is important and tragic in its own right, that allowed me to then say, even if I don't benefit from it, because I never got like the traditional father who gonna like take me to sporting events and those kinds of things. But I could say, I hope that you find God on the meandering path that you're walking because I want that for any human being. And so it sounds weird, but the less he became my father and the more he became a person who was struggling, I found space for empathy yeah. because anybody knows, sorry, Justin, I know, I think your wife is, is a clergy person. I don't know, you don't That's lead right, a church, yes. do you? Yes, yes. No, I'm not me, but, but my wife is a minister yeah, here wife. in the UK. So yeah. one, of the, one of the things that you do when you're a minister is you actually meet people on the other side of this story. In other words, you they may come into your church 
or your wife's church with a lifetime of mistakes and you meet that person then and you say to that person, whatever you did before, you can start over. Mm-hmm. And so what I used to say to the people all of the time, I would meet people who were in the place in their life where they were, were they're able to see the implication of their actions and express regret. And I would often say to them, you can begin now to make a better life for yourself. But that was hard when you're the person who experienced all of the stuff before. Yeah. And so it was really, I don't, I don't think that I could continue as a clergy person to preach grace to people and not extend it to the people who are closest to me. Yeah. I, I mean, one, one of the things that I wanted to talk about in this interview was kind of expanding it to a wider scope and the conversation on race in America, which has become extremely polarized, obviously, in all kinds of ways. But one of the things you say in the book that struck me was um, this idea that evil cannot, I'm quoting here, evil cannot be wholly explained by the brokenness of this world. Sometimes we participate in the breaking. And and it it struck me that, you know, just just as you sort of had with your father to see kind of to, to, to take a more kind of objective view that, okay, this this person had their reasons they, they had this history they had you know a particular all kinds of things went into their life that produced the person they were and the choices they made and everything there's a sense in which um that helps to kind of explain and, and some people i think um on the one hand when it comes to issues around racial justice and uh uh systemic racism and that kind of thing some people want to say well it does you know we shouldn't worry about that it doesn't exist really yeah. or you know things are good enough others want to say no it it does explain everything, you know, this is the reason why things are so awful in some parts of our community. And where do you draw that line? I suppose like, where does personal responsibility come in? Where does the fact that we are inevitably all to some extent, a victim of our circumstances and the history that we inherit, where where do you kind of draw that line or can you even draw that line? So um, I'm glad that you asked this question. I'll try to give a simple answer, but I'll say one thing. Sometimes as a writer, you can be a little bit cute. And it is, it's mm-hmm. part of what we do as writers. We, we fall in love with ideas. And the book is about my father. But in some sense, my father is a metaphor for America. And so you tying these two things together actually are related. So if you read the family history, you will say, well, why does my father become the person that he becomes? Does he become the person that he becomes because of the decisions that he makes? Well, yes, you see that in the book. But if you, if, you, if you pull back and look at the history of my family, you can see the ways in which society created the context in which he made those decisions. And who he became is a complicated mix of these two realities. The structural realities, the limited his options, but he's ultimately responsible. And so there's this point in the book of, in Genesis where um, Cain is getting ready to like kill Abel. And he says, God says to him, sin is crouching at your door, right? But you must master it. And so, well, then like, okay, like, he's like, this temptation is coming, you know, but you have to make a decision to do it. You see the same thing around um, the story of Judas. We say the son of man must go as it is written, but woe unto the man through whom it comes. So in other words, there's a divine story that is happening within which, um, Judas is making a real decision. And so what I want to say is it is simply dishonest to uh, to ignore the historical factors of racism and injustice that linger. The way that I, the way they like to explain it for Christians is to say this. 
well, what is structural racism other than sin plus power, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're greedy, for example, and you get into um, power in Congress or in business, then your greed doesn't simply impact you. It impacts the people in your business or impacts the people in the government. And so now your ability, your greed, your individual sin can be used to create laws that create structural advantages. And so the real question is, do we live in a society where someone has a sin and they have power to expand the impact of their sin to large swaths of people? And the answer to that question is inevitably yes, right? There, there are sinful people mm. who are in power with racial bias who probably use that, that power to create disadvantages. That's one way of looking at it. And so the idea, and once those racial advantages are created, they don't just disappear. They must be taken down. And the question is, have we actually taken down all of the disadvantages in society where there's no lingering after, after effects? One of the things that you can do is you can look in America. This, there's like one of my favorite, very simple, like two very simple, it may seem to be superficial analogies, but it'll, it'll help get, get the point across here. They did a story, um, they did a study on people who were pulled over by the police in the United States, in a particular portion of the country. And they found that during the day, African-Americans were pulled over at a higher rate than um, white Americans, right? But do you know, once the once nighttime happened, that number dropped and it basically equaled out. And that meant that when it was daytime and you could see the people in the car, black people pulled over at a higher level. When you could no longer see them, it was more equal. They did another study where they created equal resumes. So they did equal resumes and they put different names on the resume. One names were stereotypically African-American or foreign, and another name was stereotypically white. And they had the people who had a set script who sent them in. And when these identical resumes were sent in, one with an African-American or a foreign sounding name, one with a white sounding name, the person with the white sounding name was called back more often. And so these kinds of studies can be repeated over and over and over again to show that there's still racial biases in this country. And so I don't think it is, um, that's the explanation for everything that happens to black people in this country, but it's a partial explanation. Mm -hmm. And so I think that anybody who is a Christian ought to have a kind of theology of human sinfulness that allows for structural injustice, but also mm -hmm. has the ability to say that despite the sin that exists in the world, we're actors. And articulating that perspective, sometimes it's complicated. That's what I was trying to get at. Mm -hmm. um, and the book is to put in yeah. this, this, this mix between, is it personal responsibility or is it structural injustice? And what I want to say is yes. <laughs> Both. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's another thing you kind of, you grapple with in the book is, and I think in the particular, the universal is kind of Trojan horsing in there. In that, I imagine um, this yeah. is something being wrestled with and grappled with by the entire Black Church. Um, is the goodness of God and slavery? Um, yeah. And you know, we mentioned it earlier, and we chatted a bit before recording started. I work in Lambeth Palace Library, and they had an exhibition up called uh, "Enslavement: Voices from the Archives." where yeah. they put out all of this documentation about the church, the Church of England in particular, mm. uh, anything, any documentation that they had about their involvement in uh, in the slave trade. And 
So I would walk past every day or every day I was in the office, I would walk past these two letters from one was anonymous from an anonymous enslaved person. And one was from someone called Esther. And both of them were writing to the Archbishop in London, who they've assumed is was supposed to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, yeah. And one of them, the anonymous letter is asking for two things. It's a plea for emancipation. And then it's a plea for more Christian education. And yeah. I find that those two things in the letter going together, I have like pondered that ever since I saw it. And the second one, the letter from Esther was, wasn't a plea for, eman for emancipation. It was, please, can you find a way to let me get baptized? So yeah. this idea in both of those letters that, and again, this is just my imagination working because we don't know, particularly about the anonymous letter, we don't know what they knew, but they had enough knowledge of Christianity to think that the Archbishop in London yeah. should act in favor of their freedom yet they yeah. were asking for more of it and i just you grapple with that in your yeah. own way in your own family's yeah. narrative in the book and i don't even really know what my question is <laughs> but i would just well, love your thoughts on well, that absolute unfathomable tension for so many of us bell there i wrote a whole article about this i have to send it to you it's in the new york times um so remind me and i'll, mm. I'll, I'll send you Maybe you can put it in the show notes if people are interested. Because my yeah. family, my there, there's a for a variety of reasons, there's a record of the bone plantation, plantation on my mother's side of the family, where my ancestors were enslaved. And actually the person who owned the plantation was a minister in what became the Cumberland oh, Presbyterian wow. Church. And the interesting thing about it is as post-emancipation, generations later, my grandfather, who does appear in How Far to the Promised Land becomes a minister in the same denomination. But by that point, it's split. There's a black version and a white version. And so mm. what happened in my own family is the descendants, the, we were owned by a minister, and there's a long generation of people who become clergy in my family post-emancipation. And so this idea of wrestling with the evil of slavery and Christian faith is not, it's not a hypothesis. It's something that's in my own narrative. And what I want to say is, I think that I remember I remember having this insight at one point is we all get to this point in our lives when we begin to study American history or even British history. And we ponder the evil that the church has done. Mm -hmm. And that evil creates a spiritual crisis. How can I be a part of a tradition that has done so much evil, especially around slavery? And one of the things that I, and one of the things that, that, that struck me was. What for us is hypothetical was actually real for the enslaved people. In other words, we're wrestling with the idea of slavery and they deal with the reality of slavery. And for them, for them, and their testimony actually has to matter, right? We could, we could sometimes think that, oh, they were just dealing with religion as a crutch, but that's paternalistic, right? If we treat those people as agency and people who are incapable of doing theology, they saw in the God of the Bible a God who was a friend and not an enemy. And they concluded with every reason to have a different opinion that mm -hmm. their enslavers were wrong about Christianity. They fundamentally misunderstood it. Mm -hmm. And one of the testimonies of the black church is they, 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 they took a, a, a religion that was used to enslave and saw it as a book of freedom. I was just given a lecture the other day and I quoted one of my favorite passages from Frederick Douglass. 
And Frederick Douglass at the time was dealing with this thing called the Fugitive Slave Law. The Fugitive Slave Law said that any slave who was captured in a free state should have to be returned to a slave state. And it was passed. And so the idea is that even in a free state, citizens were obligated to return slaves. And Frederick starts reflecting and he says, you know, a lot of people are justifying this move by using the book of Philemon. And they're saying that the Bible justifies slavery. And so Frederick Douglass asks an important question. He says, what do you do in this context? What do you do? Do you throw away the Bible? He says, no. He says, he says this, right? You press it to, he said, you don't throw it away. You press it to your, your bosom more firmly. And you prove from those texts that God is on the side of liberty and not slavery. So someone who himself was an escaped slave, who lived in a context where, he, where enslavement still existed, saw the wickedness of the church and said, you know what? We have to have confidence that we ultimately understand God better. And what I came to um, ponder as an adult is to say, okay, there were two forms of Christianity that existed during you know, the 1800s, 1700s, during, in which slave, during which slavery existed. There was one group of people who said God wants black people to be enslaved and that the murder, assault, and abuse, and torture of black bodies is sanctioned by God. That's one group of people. There's another group of people who were black who said, no, 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 that is not the God of the Bible. And I decided that the people who said, no, 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 that's not mm -hmm. the God of the Bible, my ancestors were correct. And so I can lament the evil that was done in the name of Christianity and say that despite that evil, there was a counter testimony. And my only other option was to say, you know what? The people who says that the Bible teaches the black people are inferior and that the Bible sanctions the abuse and, and torture of black bodies were indeed correct. And I didn't, I didn't believe that. And I, then I opened the book for myself and I read it from cover to cover and I didn't discover that God. I discovered the God that my ancestors mm -hmm. worshiped who, who was on the side of the disinherited and stepped on peoples of the world. And so that's one of the things that was vital in my own spiritual journey. It, it kind of raises that whole question, though, that, that obviously, you know, your your, your well-known book, Reading While Black, kind of addressed, which is yeah. just how differently the Bible can be read by different people in different yeah. contexts. And, the, the, yeah. and, and so that sense of how do we, because a lot of people want to say, well, you know, there's just a kind of a, a, an interpretation of the Bible. But obviously the yeah. way that someone who is enslaved and with that history reads, I don't know, the book of Exodus is, yeah. is going to necessarily yeah. be very different and have a different sort of completely different way of engaging that text than say yeah. someone who's never experienced that, that sort of um, life. Yeah. So, I mean, what, how, how, what is the Bible in that sense? It's not, it's not a kind of like here, you know, here it's landed and we just like read off it and we all come to the same conclusions. Presumably it's, it's yeah. something more organic than that in your view, Esau. Yeah. So I think now I think that there's a message in the Bible that emerges. So I don't think we can make the Bible say whatever we want it to say. But there's a thing what I want to call like we the the body of Christ across time and a cult, the body of Christ across time and culture are, are attempting together to discern the mind of Christ. And there mm -hmm. are a host of things that can get in way of in the way of that discernment. So if you have money and power then you're motivated not to see in the Bible the text to speak about the ways which money and power are corrupting. Mm -hmm. So the people who were enslaving people were motivated not to see 
what the Bible says. And so in that sense, their social location of power and money hindered them from seeing what was actually there. In the same way, it because the people were oppressed, they actually and they were found themselves in a similar social location to the people in the Bible. They actually saw what was there. And so what I want to say is that our social location, our position in life and culture and experiences can either help or hinder us depending on the situation, which is why we need a bunch of people reading the Bible together to discern the mind of Christ. It's, mm -hmm. it, you know, one of the things that happens, at least in the United States, that someone comes from another culture and because they come from outside of the culture, they can see things about us that we can't see about ourselves. And they can sometimes speak a true word to us that we can't see because we're all caught up in the same thing. And so maybe when I talk about reading while black, all I'm saying is African-American people, oppressed people in the United States have a collected wisdom that comes from reading the Bible from a certain location that doesn't create truth, but it, it uncovers truth that may be clouded by people's power and privilege. Um, I'll give you, I remember reading a commentary um, one day. It was on the Gospel of Luke. And the person was talking about the Good Samaritan, and they were trying to apply the Good Samaritan. And they were saying, you know, you get that feeling of discomfort. They were saying, like, what is the Samaritan like? They're trying to explain it to the reader. And it's like, oh, this would be like someone from a foreign country who you saw. I said, well, hold on. Actually, for me, someone from the Middle East does not necessarily signal danger. For me, it would have been somebody with a Confederate flag in their trunk. Mm. And so they were, mm. they were automatically, as an interpreter in the Gospel of Luke, in a, in a well-known commentary, reinforcing the idea that someone from the Middle East is probably a terrorist. Mm. Because from their middle-class perspective, the most dangerous person they might see is a Middle Easterner. Mm. And so that person's middle-class social location distorted their, their analogy. They reinstate, they re you know, there was, there was another, there was another um, commentary. I was reading about slavery and they were saying that, and this is actually true. I saw it in there. Not going to say the person's name. And they were talking about um, emancipation. They would say, you know, in the ancient world, um, you know, people are often emancipated at a certain age. So a significant, a significant number of people are emancipated before they die. I think the age is like 35. And then in the footnote, this is actually true. In the footnote, it says, except women who were often weren't emancipated. I said, well, hold on. That's half the population, right? And so for yeah. you to say there was a lot of people who were emancipated except women. I said, what if you're a woman reading this story? Then the entire don't worry, you're going to get free doesn't help because a lot of women who were enslaved were died in childbirth because of the mortality rates. And so in other words, what I'm trying to explain is Sometimes we can't see the ways in which our privileges impact our exegesis. And so we need people from different cultures not to create meaning, but to help us to see what is there. One of the things that's really amazing, mm -hmm. anyone who's ever, who's ever preached a sermon, or who's, you know that the moment you change audiences, it affects what you see in the text. If you're thinking, okay, I got to preach a sermon to like 200 high schoolers. And you open up the same text you preached a thousand times, you go, oh, I never noticed how this passage directly speaks to their experiences. And I wouldn't have noticed this detail in the passage unless I had that group in mind. And so when you change the target audience, you change the angle of vision that opens the text up for the interpreter. And so when you have a black community in mind 
and you're looking at a passage, it helps you to see the things that are there. The best analogy I can use is this is it's 1954 in the United States. Brown versus Board of Education has just passed. They've now integrated the schools. And you have to stand up and preach. In one congregation, it is an all-white congregation. and the other, it's an all-black congregation. And it's the same passage. <laughs> and both can be faithful interpretations. They're going to pull different mm -hmm. things out of the text because of the target audience. And so I think that monocultural exegesis um, is is limited because it doesn't allow for the variety of experiences to be brought out in the exposition of scripture. A hundred percent. I remember I went to recently, I went to a, um, a church that does an, a, a service specifically for people in varying stages of, um, addiction recovery and the yeah. liberation theology in that, like I did a module in uni on liberation theology and yeah. It was null and void, you know, like, so it's the, and that's yeah. what I think, you know, like, like reading while black, that was such a contribution to the, oh. the, it was such a contribution because it's not like, it's not like when you read these things from different cultures, different contexts, it's not just like you're only learning about these, these cultures, you're learning from them. And, and yes. there are, there are things that me reading, doing my research, reading the Bible, I will never be able to pull out because they write in my blind spots. And that's why we need this like diverse, diverse, well, just diverse exegesis always. Can I, can I give you an example of this that might be much Please. less controversial? That'll include, um, I think someone, have you had N.T. Wright on here yet? Have you, have you snuck him onto the podcast we, yet? We, we haven't had him on this podcast yet, but I've, I've, yeah. I've had the pleasure of, of hosting him many yeah, times on other shows. Yeah. And so <laughs> one of the things that, that you will know, what becomes new perspective on Paul is, has strong influence by both N.T. Wright and James Dunn, who were in, in the United Kingdom at the time. And one of the things I didn't notice until I moved to the United Kingdom was the different ways in which World War I, so World War II impacts Great Britain than it does the United States. Like I, you go into every small town and you see these monuments to the soldiers who died in mm -hmm. World War II. And you go into St. Paul's and there's like the physical um, legacy of World War II is in the United Kingdom in a way that it isn't in the United States. One of the, in other words, mm -hmm. the physical, the physical um, legacy of the United States is in our geography is actually slavery. And so mm -hmm. when you're talking about when post-World War II and we finally kind of guess what happens with the Holocaust and anti-Semitism, it is not a surprise that the, the reconsideration of the role of the law happens in the United Kingdom. Because in yes. the United Kingdom, they're motivated to make sense of what are the ways in which biblical interpretation contributed to anti-Semitism, which led to the devastation of World War II. I'm not saying that, like, you know, you understand the limits of the analogy. What I'm saying yeah. is the, the legacy of the World War II has such yeah. a weighty impact on the geography and the lived experiences of mm -hmm. that generation of scholars that Paul mm -hmm. and the law and the question of anti-Semitism becomes a pressing question in New Testament scholarship. In the same yes. way, the legacy of um, slavery in the United States is physically here, such that slavery is a principal question and issue in biblical interpretation in the United States. And so we mm. think of the new perspective as simply an insight that was created. 
But in some sense, the social location of those scholars in the UK informed and led to the reconsideration of the stereotypes about Judaism, which then led to the reconsider the entire thing. So E.P. Sands, that it's a generation of people who wake mm-hmm. up post-World War II. And so we think that social location only happens in Black biblical interpretation. I want to suggest that social location happens in all biblical interpretation. Yeah. We wake up yeah. and we kind of realize the ways in which cultural stereotypes slide into exegesis that distorts the reading of Paul. Now, the thing that's really great about that is I do think that the the, the um, stereotypes about the law were incorrect. And then what's in what the aftermath of World War II did, and then the reconsideration of the standard interpretations of Paul led us to being better readers of Paul. But they were not historically uninformed. If, sorry, I'm going to be nerdy one more time. If you go back, you know, 50 years to the turn of the century, the 1900s, and the idea that humanity coming of age means you need a universal Jesus, we got to get rid of the Jewishness of Jesus, is an enlightenment concept, right? The idea that the universal is not the particular. So that entire generation of biblical scholars who were like, no, 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 Jesus wasn't Jewish. He was a Greek guy, right? He was a cynic. That was influenced by the cultural assumptions of the time. And so I want to ask, when can you find a non-socially informed interpretation of the Bible? And Mm. sometimes social location hurts us, the the de-Jewishness of Jesus. Mm. Sometimes social location helps us to make us better readers post-World War II, the recovery of the Jewishness of Jesus. So reading my black is just another manifestation of something that's been happening in biblical studies forever. Yeah. It's been really interesting chatting with you on on this occasion, Esau, because you you won't know this, but earlier on in this season, we we chatted with Chinny McDonald, who's um, a black theologian here in the UK. I know her. And she's amazing. Tell her I said yeah, she's amazing. I, yeah, I will. But but <laughs> Chinny, Chinny, in a sense, brought her perspective as someone living in the UK with, from Nigerian heritage originally. Um, and and it's been great to hear your perspective, you know, because the issues are inevitably different. There's overlap, obviously, but with the heritage that you have in the USA and, and slavery there and so on. Um, I mean, in the end, you know, we, and we asked this of Chinny as well, <clears throat> um, given, given, given all that we've already said about the way that the church has been complicit in so many of these issues. And yet there's that hope that's there because actually the Bible somehow seems to be able to free itself, even from the abuse of power and money that, that often mm-hmm. comes with it in, in certain quarters. How, how do we re-enchant our culture, which again, seems to be, so polarized on these issues seems to be getting worse you know the more that social media tends to be framing these conversations it just seems to bring out the very worst in people bring out the extremes and everyone seems to think they know what the answer is to to the issue of race um how does the how do we kind of just i don't know in some sense transcend those culture wars what can christianity do to re-enchant this conversation that is obviously still seems so almost that that promised land that you you know you metaphorically talk about in the book just seems so yeah. unattainable because we seem to constantly hamstring ourselves you know it, it, you know in our modern world what, what can the christian worldview do to get us any closer to to that to that realization i think that this might seem um silly or superficial but i think the problem is that is that we're often insufficiently christian and what I mean by that is that Christianity lays out a vision of the world. It actually begins from Genesis all the way through of the gathering of people across different cultures, united under the worship of the one true God. And for some people, they want to pull those two things apart. In other words, they want to just gather the cultures 
and that's all that matters. Or there's people who just say, well, let's just worship God. But the idea that the, a cross difference together, worshiping the one true God, is the vision that is often insufficiently articulated or that we give up on. And part of what it means to be a Christian is to continue to tell people the things that are true, even when the evidence runs the contrary. I'll give you two examples, one from experience and one from the Bible. One of the things that's happening that you talked about, Justin, is just what you, the polarization of our society and the idea that we see the brokenness of the world and we're often discouraged. And I say one of the great things about being from the black church is that we have the advantage of never having believed the propaganda. In other words, we became Christians at the moment we were deeply disappointed with other Christians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there is no idealistic past that we can look to of unity. We became Christians in the context of slavery where people were like enslaving us who claimed to be Christian. And so the yeah. entire history of the black church has been in one in which we were hoping in God in a culture that was often deeply disappointing. And that's why our music has a certain ethos and passion and, and feel to it, because it is a nonetheless God is good. And so part of what I want to answer the question is, like, how do I how do I do it? It's the only way of being Christian that I know that mm -hmm. there is no period that I can look to in American history and say, this is a great time to be a black Christian. Mm -hmm. But because we believe certain things are true, that Christ was raised on the third day, that he reigns over all things. That's been our source of hope. And if you look at our story, you can say it's not perfect, but it's a story of expanding freedoms rooted in the trust in God. So that's the first one. One of the, the second one, this is my Bible one for the people who like the Bible, is that Paul's, Paul's, Paul was probably angrier in Galatians than he was at any other like, congregation. Like, he was really annoyed at the Galatians. Maybe the Corinthians are in our close second. <laughs> but it's actually in the book of Galatians that you have the articulation, the articulation of the fruit of the spirit. And you have at every point, even in Corinthians, you have this beautiful articulation of love in first Corinthians 13, or you have in Romans, just articulation of the, the, the saints who are waiting for the glory of God to be revealed. Mm -hmm. And so even in congregations that were deeply divided and disappointing to Paul, he laid out a picture consistently of what they might be. Like you may be in this place, but you could display the fruits of the spirit. You may be in this place, Corinth, but you could actually learn to love one another. And the fact that he did that over and over again across his letters, and there's always this moment in the letter, if you read them, where he goes, this is what the church could be. Hmm. And I think the hardest thing for clergy in the midst of a disappointed and divided world is not to sink down and get in the mud and, and fight with everybody, but to consistently present before the people a picture of what is possible in Christ. And so the idea of like, what can you do to re-enchant the world? You articulate the, re the world re-enchanted and transformed by the gospel over and over again in the, in the face of all evidence of the contrary. And that's what Paul did, right? And so mm -hmm. that would be my, my call to say, keep in our hearts the vision of what is possible and presented to people again and again and again. Yeah. It's that imaginative endeavor that you mentioned like earlier in our chat, imagining that things are better and then waking them out. Oh, yeah. thank you, sir. Every time you venture into sort of like biblical studies stuff, I get <laughs> dangerously close. I get dangerously close to a point of no return where I'm like, listen, if I go too far, ask this one question, I'll never come back. So... <laughs> 
<laughs> but thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you, you Esau, so much. Yeah, it's been an thank absolute pleasure to have you on, Esau. Anytime you all need me, and I'm looking forward to part two in person at Lambeth yes. Palace Library. Amen. Yes. Amen to that. Yeah, we look forward to, to, to seeing you here, here in the UK uh, next year, Esau. For the moment, thank you so much for being our guest on today's show. God bless you. We'll make sure there are links to the new memoir from the show notes and the article you mentioned from the New York Times as well. For now, yeah. bless you for being with us here on Reenchanting. Thank you. So the, this is it. We are at the end of season two wow. of Reenchanting. How quickly has that gone? It has. I mean, we've had such a great range of guests again. Um, it, we don't, in a sense, consciously plan it all out meticulously. Sometimes things come together. Mm -hmm. But it, as I said in the conversation with Esau today, it, I do feel like that sort of that whole thing about the living in the messy middle has come out in various conversations with, yes. with people like Kate last week, with Frank Skinner, who, you know, we started off the series with. Um, with um, Susanna Lipscomb, you know, and yes. her, her, her talking about, you know, living in the fact we don't live in a binary of good and evil in the world, you know, saints and sinners, history tells us that and we're, we're all kind of muddling through in some way. But it's been an encouraging thing, I think, for me to, to hear from all those voices. Incred yeah, incredibly encouraging. I can't, I can't even begin to pick a fave. Every week has just <laughs> been an absolute joy and a delight to have been in those conversations they there were a few times where as the conversation was happening i thought oh this is pure gold coming out of their mouths <laughs> well amazing it, it's it's been reflected in some of the lovely comments we've had we always ask you to rate and review if you mm. can um yeah. this one from patters said um relevant and interesting these podcasts explore issues of faith and life that are becoming increasingly contested today Many people find it hard to engage in meaningful debate in this area. So the quality of discussion is really helpful. Thank you so much. What a lovely, oh, lovely thank you, comment to leave. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are at the end of season two, but we have our sights firmly set on season three. And you may or may not have heard Justin or I mention, but you can help us. You can join our community of supporters. And if you love this show, if you want more of it and more of these conversations, then please do um, think about helping us, supporting us. You can head to seenandunseen.com forward slash give. And the link will also be in the bio of this conversation. Yeah. Yep. So that's, it's an easy way to support us. Um, as, as I say, th these conversations, uh, we love hosting them, but they do cost money inevitably to put together. Uh, we are really invested in this idea of seeing good conversations with people across the faith spectrum about how we re-enchant our materialist culture with that vision mm. of Christian reality. Um, and whether, whether you kind of are on that journey, you know, if you're sold out or you're kind of just at the beginning or, or, or really not sure whether any of it's true. I hope you've found these conversations helpful as we've tried to, to navigate them for you. And, and again, if you would like to support them, the link is there with the show info, seenandunseen.com slash give. For now, it's the end of season two. We look forward to seeing you or you hearing yeah. us in season three next year. Some really, really interesting guests coming up in season three. And for now, yeah. I suppose it's just a, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Yeah, see you in 2024.
You've been listening to the Reenchanting podcast. Do subscribe to listen back to all our past episodes and help others to discover the show by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also find more videos, articles, and resources at seenandunseen.com. See you next time. Thank you.